Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. And this is 2020. On the ABC News Magazine, 2020, tonight. I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life. Billy Joel. Go ahead with your own life, leave me alone. Only the good time. Says he was a punk in high school, didn't show up for class. So at the end, they said, uh, well, we can't graduate you because you haven't showed up, so you have to go to summer school. So I went, I'm not going to Columbia University. I'm going to Columbia Records. He did. And now at 30, he's grossed more than $80 million in records alone. Album after album, big sellers all, and each one in a different style. He's one of the very few truly unique performers in music today. I just want someone... An exclusive profile tonight by Tom Hoving, Billy Joel. I want you just the way you are. By 1980, Billy Joel was ready for prime time. Starting with a feature on 2020 during the lead up to Glass Houses, he graduated from playing a song or two on a talk show to getting regular MTV spotlights, being the subject of news features, and appearing on morning shows for a week at a time. As Billy's popularity reached its peak, he also honed his interview style. Over multiple appearances, he develops his stories, talking points and jokes, and refines them over time. The second half of the 80s would find him coasting on the new media personality he developed, even as his band, personal and business relationships got rocky. But at the start of the decade, Billy was riding high on the small screen. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joe's television appearances from 1980 in 1984. You know, Michael, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but this episode is going to be another entry in its way in the uh, Nylon Curtain 40th anniversary year-long celebration we're doing here. I was watching these, I realized just how much of, of the Nylon Curtain, and in particular Allentown and Pressure, are all over a lot of these interviews. That totally was not intentional. I didn't even pick up that thread until I started watching these the other day. It's it's really incredible the amount of um, coverage that he was starting to get around that era. You can definitely see how the coverage ramps up over the years. Like there's a little bit, he's finally starting to get some national attention for glass houses. Yeah. It's really picking up with the dawn of MTV with the Nylon Curtain. And then An Innocent Man hits. Well, he also then starts dating Christy Brinkley. So the type of coverage also starts to change. And it's funny, too, because we recently went through his episode of Night School on MTV, which was, of course, I guess technically a special because there was never an episode two with anyone else. When we did our watch back on that, we really honed in on how many of the stories by now, of course, 40 years later, we've heard before. But even by then, we know that he had been telling a few of those stories already and he had been honing them. And we sort of compared him to being like a stand-up comedian where, you know, you sort of workshop these in clubs and then you're ready for the big time. You know, then you're ready for your, in today's parlance, I guess, Netflix special. Used to be HBO special. (laughs) Right. I know. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I don't want to give it all the way here, but Michael, you did a great job curating these clips and also putting a good cutoff on it because obviously 
as you said, he got so much media coverage in this decade. So we went from 1980 to 1984, and Michael made a judicious cut at just a perfect point for me to like sort of put a, a, a narrative to these four years in chronological order worth of uh, interviews and, and TV appearances. It actually works really well um, when you're looking at the 1980s as far as Billy's concerned, because they are very different segments of his career. We really see the rocket to stardom in the first half of the 80s, mid 80s, he's megastar. And mm. he starts to go through some turmoil in the latter half. It's really interesting to see where where he's sitting in the first half of the 80s. And to your point about him honing the stories, it's funny, I was watching these last night. My wife, Jen, she was doing some things in passing in the other room, and she would walk by every now and again, and she's like, he either has really good media training or he's just really good at this. <laughs> and Because she, she picked up right away on him honing the stories through the years and how impressive that was. I think that's his part of it, but... When we watch these all in a row, which of course you didn't do back then, we condensed four years of appearances into, I guess, about, about an hour's worth of uh, YouTube clips. There seems to have been a lot of deliberation as to you know, exactly how he presented himself, how he was presented, what questions people asked, things like that. You know, a lot of it depends on the interviewer as well, too. And you'll see some he's very at ease, very comfortable um, just with his body language and some you can tell he's a, he's a bit uncomfortable in this situation, but he still manages to deliver some great sound bites. What was fun for me was not just noticing the the same things that were kind of evolving over time, but each interview seemed to have at least a little nugget of uniqueness. Each seemed to have its their own theme, even though you'd see the same motifs come up or the same questions and and general answers right pop up in, in a handful of them. This is also a great place as we jump in to start with his uh, twenty uh, to start with his feature package on uh, twenty twenty back in nineteen eighty because they do mention at the beginning of the video that this is his first first national TV profile maybe they say it's his first yeah his first TV interview actually which I guess that's technically not true I think it's that, I think they might have said profile. Yeah, profile or something to that effect. Because, well, it's at least the first time that he's not playing a song and then being grilled by uh, some old guard right. <laughs> yeah. variety show host. And we would go from here until what we see in 1984 on the Today Show. It's notable to see how he clearly was using this first one to start really uh, setting the table or, or framing this the way he wants it framed. And there's sort of a culmination of it by the end of, of the series of videos that we watched. There's a few really fascinating things about this 2020 interview because this is the only real in-depth footage surrounding Glass Houses. You know, you've got quite a bit of concert footage, which was the Houston 1979 show. We speculated a bit when we covered that concert, you know, why was it filmed? What was it done for? And in kind of connecting the dots, I wonder if that was just filmed by ABC for this. As you were saying that, I was thinking about the same thing, and I wonder, as a variation of that, if not filmed by ABC, did they film this concert knowing that they wanted to break Billy into TV appearances and they needed the most up-to-date footage? That's a very good possibility, too. It's like, you know, let's get a show filmed so we have something in the can to to use. That's That's also a very good possibility. You know, one of the things 
you know, we kind of learned when we were doing PR kind of stuff was, you know, the best thing you can do is uh, approach a, a newspaper or a TV show or whatever and say, I have something exclusive for you. I have a photo. You can run this photo. Nobody else is going to have it. Something like that. So yeah, right. if you're trying to break into 2020, which was, you know, still is, I guess, you know, the, the premier uh, primetime news magazine, being able to say, well, we have two hours worth of exclusive footage and you get first crack at it if you do this interview. Yeah. You know, this is all conjecture, but just knowing how these things work, that makes a lot of sense. I would certainly wager that it's one of those two scenarios for sure. So yeah, talking about curating his image and, and setting the table or taking control of it, the buzzword that comes up more than once in this interview is the word punk. He says it and uh, the interviewer says it, or the narrator rather says it. It's notable because this is Glass Houses. This is where he tries to, and you know, mostly su- somewhat successfully, I guess, takes that turn from balladeer singer-songwriter into, you know, I'm trying to be more of a rock and roll kind of guy, stripped down, addressing new wave kind of thing, which is interesting too, to your point where you were saying before how, you know, he was a superstar in the 80s. He took all these different turns. You know, every album was different. Uh, It's very true. And it's also true that the three albums that preceded Glass Houses, while each built on each other, were clearly of the same ilk. You know, from Turnstiles to Strangers to 50 Seconds, it was a sound that developed there weren't any real um, sudden stylistic changes, which would, of course, change starting in 1980. I also wonder if the reason he went for the TV interviews now was because he knew he had to do a bit of reinventing. Although it's somewhat ironic that you're trying to be a punk on 2020. Like, you know, why don't you just <laughs> right. go on Oprah while you're at it? But Oprah wasn't around yet. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. You know, these days, the 2020s and the datelines of the world you know, try to be a little more edgy and a little more hip. 2020 back in its day was certainly not that. That was, you know, your mother's or your grandmother's TV show. They had great packages and great stories uh, like this one here, but it was certainly a different flavor than the 2020 that we know today. And this will inform how we're watching this in 2022. You know, we don't need these kinds of packages anymore. We have all the behind the scenes stuff as it's happening that we want with the artists that we listen to, Twitter themselves. They're posting photos and short videos of themselves in the studio. So it must have been such a treat to see Billy and Phil Ramone and whomever else pops up in the background on this video when they're quote unquote recording. You may be right. And don't ask me why. I know. We'll we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, that's not to denigrate it. It is just to put it in the time frame because it is a fun interview to watch. This also seems to be the only on-record filmed interview with Artie Rip. I just get the checks. Yeah, I don't get the calls that my girlfriend broke up with me or yeah. this or that. I just get the checks. A lot, Like I said, a lot of framing in this one. And I'm curious if uh, a certain younger Rip will uh, return our calls. I'm curious to know what Artie thought of this because... He definitely gets cast as the villain here. He's mm-hmm. one step away from a top hat, a cape, and a damsel in distress tied to the railroad tracks. <laughs> if you talk to him, or certainly if you talk to his son, Adam, they will emphasize how much money they invested in Billy. They took the risk on him when no one else would, which is certainly true. So I'm very curious if he felt like he got slighted in this interview, if they just went with the juiciest moments that fit Billy's narrative. They film an hour and they condense it down to four minutes. It's like, you're going to find four minutes of uh, some salacious stuff. Yeah. For all we know, they could have wound already up until the point where he was like, yeah, I get the checks. I get the money, you know. Exactly. 
Well, oh, we get the, the return of the Iranian salute from the Houston show. I liked seeing the small footage of production of the album, like actual, you know, um, not production, but the manufacturing process. You see album covers getting assembled mm-hmm. and going down the line and all of that. That to me was really cool. It's almost a shame we're not talking to Robert Neville because he does this stuff for CNN now. It would might have been interesting to like kind of get his take on how some of these are put together. We'll have to bother him about that later at some point. I like seeing the executive room and some of the regulars. Yeah, they kind of paired, <laughs> you know, some of the uh, lyrics with like some people that were ha- were there that night. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was the line? You know, something about people who just you know forget to eat dinner. Or so it was some line about like it was the type of crowd that would forget to eat dinner. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and he was saying yeah because it was a you know L.A. wasn't really a bar town, so these guys were like drinkers you know like i guess if you were a regular in a bar in la like you were you were there on purpose man looking ahead a little in this you know talking again about framing uh this is something that i've i certainly brought up at least when we were talking about piano man if not other places too where the interviewer says um they're visual songs uh, with a journalistic bent or something to, something to that effect he, he talks about them being visual and having an, a, jur- a journalistic style to them and then love songs with a touch of the knife like that is that is some finely crafted wordsmithing right there just to get, you know, just to, to nail exactly what it is. Yeah. I would call it crass if it didn't really hit the nail on the head so well. <laughs> really good description. So let's talk about this, um, this segment when they're in A&R studios and, and Billy is somehow under the gun to come up with lyrics to don't ask me why, because any second now the label is going to pull the plug on this session. <laughs> the union bell is going to ring and that's going to be it. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if this was already the time they were moving away from A&R, though. This may not have been A&R. Fine. Stymie my attempt to name drop here. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it is the crew. The guy at the board next to him with the mustache, I'm pretty positive that's Jim Boyer. It's just the narrative of them having to be there when he's, you know, recording You Maybe Right or finishing a lyric to Don't Ask Me Why. Well, as we know from talking to Bradshaw Lee, they would record it with nonsense lyrics and then he would come in with right. the lyrics written. And I'm sure there was right. a tweak made here or there, but it wasn't that, oh shit, I have to you know finish this line because we have to go record it now. And then, you know, with the You Maybe Right performance, he's obviously hamming it up for the camera and it's certainly not what was on the record. You know, what's notable about that is the track is already mixed. And there's backing vocals on it. He's harmonized already. Right. There's a double moment. <laughs> that had to be done on purpose. So they must have thought it was hilarious. Like, dude, just, just yeah. leave the backing vocal in, you know. Just for show, you know, they had the song done mixed. They just, you know, took out the, you know, the lead vocal and Billy went into the live room and did a performance for the camera. Because again, you know, they cut that all live. So he wouldn't have been doing the vocals later anyway. Yeah, because it's also worth noting nobody else at the band is there. So then uh, we hop across the pond, as it will, to uh, live in Paris. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a ridiculous shot at this. Uh, Le rendezvous du dimanche. How's that? The Sunday <laughs> date. <laughs> I'll buy it. Just like we're gonna buy Billy's uh, French singing on this one too. Oh, I know, so good. Apropos to the location, he's in France, so he does say to toi with the uh, French lyrics there. They do the whole thing. He's wearing a red jacket that we'll see in the at least one more segment from this series, not, not from this episode or not from this appearance, but later appearances, he's wearing the same red jacket. 
which is I mm-hmm. I believe is the one I call the Joan Jet jacket, where I think he looks like Joan Jet on the on the cover oh, of the, the forty five. Yeah. Clearly the band is pantomiming to a backing track. Although it is fun to see Richie playing accordion, we're gonna assume that that's what happened on the record because, you know, Richie just plays apparently whatever he can get his hands on. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah and, you know, exactly. Yeah, the, you know, I tell you, man, the more I watch this stuff, the more you grow to appreciate how clutch he was when when you didn't have the budget for uh, Dave Rosenthal and Mark Rivera. And Crystal and Mike Del Judas. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I was like, Richie, can you play the Hammond? Yeah, I can play the Hammond. Can you play the sax? Yeah, I can play the sax. Can I play piano? Yeah, I can play piano. Like... <laughs> Percussion, sure. Yeah, flute, yeah. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, flute too, whatever it was, whatever it was needed, you know. So what's fun about this is if you listen carefully through the first half of the performance, you're like, I'm pretty sure this vocal's live. It's pretty close to the studio. And of course, once you're dealing with a first of all, audio from television, then audio from television sent to VHS, then VHS ripped to digital and sent to YouTube. It's like I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm very appreciative of all this stuff, but obviously this wasn't great audio to begin with. But right. at the end of the song, he gives a little like mischievous look and then he just, he kicks in with some harder vocals, way harder than anything that's on the album. And, and he soars for a moment, just like, seems like really just to nod to the fact that like, no, I'm at least live. <laughs> Billy notoriously hated lip syncing, yeah. hated it. And he wanted to be live at all costs. And, you know, I know, you know, for these kind of situations, there was no way they were going to get a good live band sound. I honestly was impressed with the quality of the vocal considering, you know, they just had the recording going through the room and he's singing live along to it. You have to wonder how much noise Liberty's making back there in the moment. Uh, I'll bet you he's playing just to, just to keep himself centered, uh, you know, tonally. Yeah. And I'm sure they had something going on to deaden the drums and cymbals. He's playing just so it looks somewhat real. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's, it also helps that they, they pick a, uh, a soft song so he's not doing the usual pyrotechnics back right. there. The host comes up and he sort of speaks. He speaks to Billy in English. I found this interesting. I think he speaks to Billy in English. Billy, of course, answers in English and gives pretty short answers so that as he's talking and as the host is replying, the host is is making the uh, translations real quick, sort of as interjections in his own sentence as he's moving on to the next part of his uh, question. But I got to say, the next part where the host is singing Honesty that really works. Like, get Richie back out here with the accordion. I want to hear the uh, beret and cigar, uh, cigarette smoking, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. uh, coffee shop in Paris version of uh, Honesty. Bonjour à tous. Bienvenue à un horaire inhabituel, 4h30, mais c'est exceptionnel. Hello, Billy Joel. How are you doing? Hello. Congratulations for your French. You speak French, man. Un petit peu. Un petit peu, the good accent. Yes. Comment vous sentez-vous en Europe, en France, chez nous? How do you feel in France, Billy? How do I feel now? Yeah. French. In France. <laughs> yes. French, yeah. 
You, you like the French public? And the food and the wine? Oui, et la nourriture et le vin, bien sûr, il n'est pas américain pour rien. Your new album, uh, it's Glass Houses. Right. It's a little bit different of the last. It's a little bit different from the last. We always did rock and roll, but this album, we just put a lot more of it on. Voilà, on a toujours, avec mes musiciens qui sont là d'ailleurs, écrit et joué du rock and roll, mais ce disque est peut-être plus orienté vers cette musique. I can sit with you. Je peux m'asseoir à côté de vous? I have a surprise for you. Okay. My dream is to sing some seconds, a few seconds with you. Okay. You know this song? Attendez. Je vais me lancer. Là. Je vais faire une surprise. J'ai pris un méthode à 6000, ça fait 4, 4 jours que je travaille là-dessus. On y va. Ok. Honesty is such a lonely world. Everyone is so untrue. Honesty is And mostly what I need from you. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. You could tell for a minute, Billy's like, "What's happening here?" Like he had no idea what was going on. Yeah, and he's like trying to like. But he's like, "What are you gonna do?" He's like, he just went with it. But I could tell he had a moment in his eyes, like, "What is happening? Why is he sitting down?" Yeah. (laughs) Oh, he wants to sing the song. Okay. Yeah. Right. In. You were the one where he he picks up on the vocals. I don't know if this is on purpose or not, but he really looks like he's doing a Sylvester Stallone impression. Just the way his jaw kind of moves to the right. And they they both got the same kind of punch drunk face, you know? (laughs) I wonder if that's what he was laughing about, if they had been like doing that backstage or something, or if, you know, he had been messing around with that. My guess, because of the setup, the band was probably just shooting each other looks, trying to make each other chuckle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just getting through this thing. So yeah, after this kind of awkward interview, he, he the host sings a bit a verse of honesty. Billy plays a little bit of it. You can see Russell strumming the chords, and then they are going to go into the next song, which is "Don't Ask Me Why." And you know, because it starts with everyone in together, they left the count in from the studio recording. I don't know if you caught it, Liberty counting it in. I thought it was like it was counted in, but didn't they do it in French or something? But that's Liberty because I have a recording like a work in progress of that song. And I'm oh, pretty really? sure that's on it. And if you also notice this right before the count in starts, mm-hmm. you could hear the tape start and it's <laughs> really loud because everyone in the band jumps back. I gotta have to look for that. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, Russell like just goes really far back. He does. It really caught him by surprise. Yeah, <laughs> you wonder. You almost wonder if that was stage two, just because it was like so, uh, like just, just so perfect. Like, like us, him and David Brown, uh, you know, just like right. in unison. Like if they knew that was coming, I got a kick out of this host. I don't know why. I like that guy. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, because Doug just kind of throws his hand up a little. <laughs> but yeah, that that's a count in from the studio recording. And, oh, okay. Um, and yeah, it's amazing though, because there are moments where you're like, is it live? Because there are moments where it does sound crazy close to the studio version. Yeah. On the vocals. I, I did note too, he was in very good vocal form on this song, especially. Got some nice clean high yeah, notes. Yeah, really there. strong. We're not going to go too nuts, or maybe we will. You know, where was he in April of uh, 1980? Was he on tour? Did he just fly over? You know, you think like if he hadn't sung maybe in a couple weeks... 
you know, his his voice was in it was a little rested. Let's go with old reliable setlist FM. Yeah. <laughs> End of March, he played Wembley Arena, and then he was into Europe. You know, he did Wales, Sweden, and April fifteenth, Paris, France. So it was like two weeks into tour, but only like you know, like five 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 or so shows. Play the second, the seventh, and the fifteenth, and then he does this on the twentieth, and then he doesn't play again until May first uh, in Australia. Yeah, he's kind of mid-tour, but it's not like three nights a week. It's not even two nights a it's week. It's not there. grueling got, at this yeah, point. He's, yeah, he's got a lot of space in between them, certainly. At that point in his career, I think just overall, he was a just really strong local form. He really hit a powerful stride around then. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because I always found it ironic that he, in a sense, waited until like an innocent man and the bridge to start blasting some high notes that in just a few years he would not be able to hit. And you wonder if like, those were like swan song moments for his voice in that sense. Or if it just sucks that like he finally got there and then it started diminishing like right afterwards. Yeah. yeah. You wonder, right? So this next one is kind of a promotional video. I haven't been able to find too much information about it. It's essentially a promo video for just the way you are. That was definitely filmed in 1980. Well, he's got the red jacket on again. You know, <laughs> it's so <laughs> Funny and kind of sad that it's like I can tell by the hair and by how the band looks. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, okay, that's definitely 1980. So it it, it certainly is. Uh, but as opposed to the the clip before it, uh, this one is fully pantomimed. They are just quote unquote playing along to the track, and even making it more humorous. Liberty's rack tom is on its side. Yeah, I was looking at that for no good reason. I mean, that is none. That is not a Liberty DeVito set in any sense of the word. Forget the rack tom just being on the side. It's like a was like a four piece almost, and and, and a random yeah conga. with the conga yeah the, yeah <laughs> yeah it is. It's a four piece with like just a couple symbols. He didn't play that with his hand on the studio version. That just sounds like a stick on a really dry snare drum. It's a it's a stick and a brush, stick in yeah. one hand, brush in one hand. That's what I thought. But on here, he's instead of a he's definitely using the brush with his right hand, but with his left hand, he seems to be like open palming. The snare drum, as if that's going to work. Right, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that too. It's like, what are you even doing? But it's one of those things. It's like it's not live. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's just like randomly hitting cymbals and stuff. I didn't realize his hair was that long at that point. Oh my gosh, Jen said the same thing too. She's like, "Who is that on the drums?" I'm like that's <laughs> Liberty. Yeah. This, I guess, was his beret period as well. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah, yeah, he was rocking the beret. He did that on and off. I remember I seen a couple photos of him around Stormfront. Where he would wear one too. But um, yeah, definitely a lot back in the early uh, 80s. Yeah. Well, I think this was more of a beret back at, at that point. It was like the, what were they called? The kangaroo hat? A roux? Yeah, yeah. 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 The ones that were like made to, to, to wear backwards kind of thing. This one's just kind of weird. It's just, and there's no indication what this was for or anything. But, you know, at the same time, you know, in Europe, there was a demand for music videos before anywhere else. Hence the glass houses, you know, you may be right, still rock and roll to me. Um, all for Lena, all those performance videos. Um, yeah. That was all done with the European market in mind as well. Oh, and, you know, going back to the 2020 thing for a quick sec, they talk about that too. Mm-hmm. They mentioned that it's being done for a commercial in Europe, but essentially they were, be, you know, the videos were being done for use over there. Yeah, that's right. He did say in here he is singing for a commercial or something to that effect. Yeah, and it was the You May Be Right video shoot. If you look in the comments for Just The Way You Are... This is a uh, another Mike Stutz special where he, he has this one up on his Piano Lover 2006 account. 
a lot of comments in either Portuguese or Spanish. I'm not good enough to know which mm. one, but I'm going to say it's one of those two. And yeah. I wonder then if it is, if it was something for the European market, maybe that's that's why people from other countries are cluing into this one. Yeah, maybe that was something that they saw. You know, that could very well be something that was aired over there. Let's see. I wonder if I can just run this through Google Translate without telling it what the... I'm going to guess it's Portuguese. I think I was right. Beautiful melody brings me to the deepest part of my heart and soul, makes me cry. Let me just try it in Spanish real quick. Interestingly, it can translate either one. This is a uh, a rabbit hole we don't need to go down to. <laughs> go down in this. <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't work in Italian, but it works in Spanish and Portuguese. All right, let me just try French and then I'll leave this alone. I'm just finding this fascinating. No. Okay, so it's either Spanish or Portuguese because those are the only ones that Google translates. Okay. So yeah, so that wraps up 1980. Really not a whole lot. And like we said... Things are going to start ramping up here shortly as we move into 1981 and beyond. The next thing on our list is an interesting Australian TV interview that was for a show called Countdown, and it looks like it aired May 3rd, 1981. And this was interesting because they do sort of like quick deep dives on a couple songs. And, you know, it's nothing amazingly revelatory here, but it is interesting on a show like this to just have him talk about a little bit about the background of each song in this sort of granular way. Right. And I thought it was funny that they start off with my life. And this is of course, well before the nylon curtain comes out and he's talking about, you know, sort of the meaning of my life and whatnot. And he says, uh, we all need a room of our own. And he mentions that back in 81. I was wondering if you're going to pick up on that. Yeah. Oh yeah. We'll play the clip here. Currently on tour in Australia, the piano man, Billy Joel. Earlier this week, Molly caught up with him for this interview. Was it a statement of yours that, that you wanted to get across, that, that your life was your life, that no one could really affect it? I think it was, it's more or less a feeling everybody has at one time or another. Um, like kids say it to their parents, look, I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life. Parents say it to their kids, get out of the house. Right. This is my life now. Um, Lovers say it to each other when they break up, but there's always a, a point where one needs a room of one's own, right. and that's when they get to that point. This is my life. Totally caught me by surprise, too. The fact that uh, was this idea already kicking around in his head, or was the song written, or something? There's some con- there's got to be some connection to the actual song because that's just to me too coincidental for him to, you know, at some point everyone's got to have a room of their own. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but right he was clearly alluding that to that type of statement. Yeah. And it's not like that's an idiom. It's not like something people say. So he had to have come up with this phrase. I almost want to wonder if it was written at some point in my life and got taken out. And then that, that held for a while until it was time. Yeah. So it's, it's funny then to think of room of our own in my life as conceptual cousins. I honestly wouldn't have made that connection. When you think about it this way, if, my life, as he says here, is sort of like a teenage kind of anthem, as middle of the road as the song is. And that was, what, 78? So we'll say five years later, you know, you're a young adult and you're, you're married and, you know, <laughs> and, and you're thinking in terms of uh, yoga and beer and all this other stuff. And he sounds older on the nylon curtain, obviously. So it's funny yeah, to think of that. I don't know. Is there a third one? Can we make the third one? These are the, uh, this is the time <laughs> somehow. This is the time, or there, oh, there's got to be one. Let me think. Oh, and Blonde Over Blue, maybe. Oh, Blonde, blonde Over Blue. Blonde Over Blue. Yeah, because he's he's in a in hell. There's a big hotel. 
Like how, you know, how much can you possibly isolate yourself? And then you have to let somebody back in some days when I'm far away in a lonely room in a cold seclusion. So there are your three songs, one from each decade. It's so crazy that you can make connections like that, that on the surface, very different songs, but there's, there's a common thread that really can pull them together like that. Well, he says something later and I I won't mention it now, but when I get to it, I will, that in a, in a way sort of alludes to that, I think. He's very non-confrontational in this one, and that's especially notable because when we were doing, you know, appearances from the 70s, the last one we saw from Australia was the one where we're assuming was before the concert, and he's he's in the white, like, hotel bathrobe, and he just looks pissed off to be there. Like, he has no, you know, he's, he's, he's a little ornery with the, with the interviewer and stuff. And this time around, he's, he's, he's very, very pleasant. I noticed that, too. He, you know, he's... He's playing the game and not begrudgingly. Well, yeah, at least now he gets to answer questions about his songs. That's probably a little yeah. more satisfying. And not so far into his career that he's like, oh, really? Do I have to tell you what I meant by this one again? How many of these is he still workshopping at this point? Uh, how many of these lines? Right. Yeah. This is kind of a point of the sweet spot where he hasn't talked about these songs to death and he's finally getting asked about them. He clarifies, and this speaks to what I was thinking about in the 2020 interview, where I really think there was a conscious effort to let him tell the story the way he wants it framed or told. Uh, he talks about, like, no, I didn't hate Hollywood, uh, but it, you know, when it was time to say goodbye, it was time to say goodbye. But I think that the lore behind that has been a little more bitter, that he was like, really, F this place. I'm getting the hell out of here. Yeah, so that is interesting, too, the difference in stories. Um I noticed, too, when they showed a bit of a live performance of Say Goodbye to Hollywood, it's the same setup as the James video that didn't come out until 20 years ago. Yeah, you're right. That James video is like, it's cool. It's I mean, it's fine, but it, it is so funny that that just was a curio that just never came all the way out for all that time. So, you know, if James exists, Say Goodbye to Hollywood exists. So was was it a thing where they just like were in this studio and they just were performing turnstiles songs or you know i'm you know now that we know that there's two songs from this i'm curious what it was all about what i'm thinking about in terms of those videos is the 52nd street ones exist and with the exception of honesty they added some narrative to the other ones they weren't just performance honesty was the only one they just sort of left in there i don't know what the conclusion is to that but it is an observation sometimes that's all there is (laughs) yeah So yeah, so they go over my life, Holly, uh, say goodbye to Hollywood, just the way you are, and then we get some clips of Big Shot and sometimes a fantasy. If you look, this is like Billy straight out of the songs in the attic photo shoot with the way he looks here. And in general, that's not an album where he did like a big press run. Only a couple things here for 1981 that, uh, you know, that happened. And so it's an interesting snapshot. And it's funny, the three things, he looks totally different. Between the, the Glass House stuff the contemporary interviews yeah. and then going all the way back to the 52nd street promo videos. I guess that's big shot. Yeah. I'm also talking to like just how different he looks in these three 1981 appearances that we have. Yeah. Even, you know, the live in Paris, 1980, he almost looks like nylon curtain Billy with his hair, like a little more coiffed mm-hmm. a little bit. So now we get to one we've, we covered last year, which was uh, the 1981 Grammy awards yep. where he wins for glass houses and Phil Ramone wins for producer of the year. Producer, right. Glass House, the same one, yeah. For Billy, uh, the award was presented by Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand. And the uh, the category was Best Rock Vocal Performance Male. I'm going to be old man yell at clouds on this episode because 
compare this list to any award show <laughs> category in the last 10 years. Are you going to be that guy in the comments? That's when music was music. <laughs> so here we've got Jackson Brown, Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and Kenny Loggins. Right. And Billy comes away with it for Glass Houses and clearly um, wasn't expecting to win. This was uh, the way we call it last time, the Grizzly Adams. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like his hair is fully poofed and he's got a very full beard. Right. Which is something I, I think he mentions in, in one of these videos somewhere, but we knew this from before that, yeah, he gets off tour. He just, he lets it grow out. He does his yeah. thing and then he, he shaves and he cleans himself up again when he's going back out. And as we talked about last time, it is so interesting or so fascinating to see when, uh, when, this, when these guys felt like inside baseball, where these guys weren't institution yet. They were still the kids sort of invading the award show. This would have been, yeah. you know, your Frank Sinatra's, your Tony Bennett's, your Perry Cuomo's 10 years prior. And it's almost like, who are these young rock and roll upstarts? Who forced tuxedos on them and got them out here kind of thing. I mean, and you can see it too, when you look at the audience and like, you know, it's very black tie is good for Billy. The music that's being played in on and off is like played by a big band on stage. And it's all these like kind of music versions of the songs. And it feels very old in that respect. Yeah. The big band version of don't ask me why in the background. I guess this was probably the same one we reviewed last time, although I'm sure in the uh in, in my case at least in, in terms of uh you know being efficient, I just fast forwarded to the Billy parts and in this case I watched the whole thing. Fascinating historical document for Paul Simon to reference John Lennon's death, which had happened uh just a few months prior. That was probably the most notable thing about this whole segment, really. You know, you're seeing this happy award show, you forget that one of the greatest rock and roll tragedies had just taken place and Yeah. Uh, because I think this was like right at the beginning of 1981 is when this aired. Though the Paul Simon performance on this clip was great. I mean, Steve Gadd and Tony Levin up there, drums and bass oh, yeah. respectively. Just what a great rhythm section they make. So we've got one more from 1981. And this is Billy appearing on Saturday Night Live. And him and the band are doing Miami 2017. And Billy is performing She's Got Away. This aired late 81, November 14th, 81. And uh, Bernadette Peters was the host. This was an episode where there was two musical guests. Uh, aside from Billy, in studio, they had the Go-Go's. What an interesting combination. Yeah, I agree. Songs in the Attic had come out back in September. And so this was essentially pr promoting that because he did Miami 2017 and She's Got Away, which both appear on this. And it really is the band in Songs in the Attic form. Mm -hmm. Um, because it really does sound like it could have come off the record. Both yeah. of them. It's such a funny thing when you consider that uh, they they must have workshopped this stuff show after show, you know, just, just to get everything yeah. where they want. I mean, obviously we know now that there was a lot of uh, uh, slicing and dicing done, but, you know, at some point you had to play those things that way. And, they, you know, so, yeah, that, that must have been ingrained in them at that point to play those fills and uh, you know, those flourishes just so. But it's interesting because the band... Uh, you know, it's a they're in the studio, so it's a much better. Yeah. You know, they're providing the feed, right. essentially. So, I mean, I would have to imagine that at the very least, Phil Ramone and um, you know Brad Lee and Jim Boyer are there. And if memory serves, 
Brad Lee, I asked him about it once, and he mentioned something about that they were already they were working on something at the time. Uh huh. So I wonder if they were starting work on the Nylon Curtain around that time. Yeah, I, I mean, wow, what a, what a long production schedule that really was then. Well, you know, because I um, you know, I'm trying to think because you know, Attic came out in September. Mm-hmm. The SNL was in November. The Nylon Curtain came out in September of 82, so almost a year after Songs in the Attic. But according to but according to Wikipedia, they started recording it in the winter of 1981. So, it's you know, dates aren't exact, but it's right around that time they were starting to work on the Nylon Curtain. Yeah, winter of 1981. Winter usually denotes the beginning of the year then. It's not like you're counting from December. You usually think of it as January. Yeah, actually, and that lines up. So it was probably the beginning of 81 because they were off for like six months or more while Billy was recovering. And that's something that comes up in a a later interview as well. Yeah, I forget how long it delayed things. I don't remember if it's in Liberty's book. Oh, yeah, look, here we go. In April 1980, right in the middle of making this album, Billy had a motorcycle accident. So that would have been April 81, probably. Yeah, I mean, it says 80 in the book, but... um, and then it Type says of. the album was put on hold for six weeks. From November... No- oh, look at that. Yeah. Mm. It, this is interesting. Maybe that's a typo. But it says, as a result of the accident, the Nylon Curtain took longer to record than any of Billy's other albums from November 1981 to July 1982. Yeah. Yeah. So, see, November 81. That that lines up. 1980 doesn't because that was April 1980 was when Glass Houses came out. So, and then they toured it. So, I think that 1980 date is, is off. Um, right. But the November, the November to July timeline makes sense. Yeah. And that would, that would fit with them being in the studio, getting started. Okay. Well, let's, let's just figure this out. When did Billy have the accident? April 15th of 82 of 82. They started November of 81. Oh, okay. Yeah. April of 82 accident would have been April of 82. They finished it in the summer of 82. It came out in the fall. Okay. That makes sense then. Now we've got a timeline. Now we're yeah. cooking people. <laughs> See, and that's the thing with the Billy Joel timelines. And, you know, that's why I'm very grateful for our, our friends like Jeff Fisher, mm-hmm. who just compiles such great information. It's like sometimes we just have to, like, pull through millions of sources just to try to construct a timeline. Yeah. And it's it's not easy to, to get it lined up right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the documentation's fuzzy. People like to play with dates and, and instances and, and things that happen, so... It's funny. We should we should put together the timeline someday, like just for ourselves. To Billy's credit, you know, I'm sure he thinks nobody cares about it and nobody should care about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But damn it, we do. It'd be like the 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 uh the meme of Charlie from Always Sunny Philadelphia with the conspiracy map and he's with his hands out. Yeah. Oh, totally. That's it. So it's interesting. The band is in full form, playing great, sounding like they did on the album on songs in the attic, but it's interesting that this is likely right around when, uh, the nylon curtain was beginning, but nobody would have known it at the time. It's 2022. And we're just piecing that together. That's going to be the last thing of 1981 that we came across. That brings us right into the nylon curtain cycle in 82. And so a lot of this is surrounding the album and him really starting to get a lot more coverage, um, with this studio album here. The first one on our list, again, these aren't necessarily in sequential order because a lot of them we couldn't find exact air dates and interview dates and all of this. When I sorted it by year in Excel, when I put this together, it just kind of put things in alphabetical order based on how I titled it. 
that's kind of the sequence things are going in. If you're like, why did we talk about this before this? So with this first one we've got here, it's him talking about Allentown with the mayor of Allentown. Before we go further in this one, I want to note that as we were talking about the fact that he's curating a lot of this stuff, Allentown and then secondary pressure pops up in just about every single um, this uh, promotional cycle. In every one, especially for Allentown, he takes pains to say it's not political. He's not pointing fingers. He doesn't know who to blame. He's just merely saying this is what's happening. It starts here and crops up over and over again. That's a very common theme. It's unfortunate that like he has to defend his songs and like explain over explain them. And, you know, sometimes when a song has to be over explained, it kind of loses some of the magic. It's true. But what was interesting about this one, but what I keyed into about this promotional cycle and the variations on the Allentown story. First of all, listening to this in 2022 and hearing a boomer complain about not having a job is you're like, wait, who, what now? You know, like, no, no, that, that's our thing, man. He circles it a few times and he says in this one, I'm just talking about America, you know, people my age, we see that my dad had a job and it's the 80s. What about now? What about me now? And I'll just jump ahead. At some point, he, he hones in on it, I think, so much better because he says, in terms of talking about Allentown, he goes, you know, the generation before in towns like Allentown, having a job was like a birthright. He really drives home the fact that like, you know, it's not that they're complaining because they don't have a job, man. It's that like, it just seemed the previous generation was just literally handed a job and all of a sudden, and those aren't there anymore, but they were supposed to be. Unemployment is now 12%. Allentown is also the place that Billy Joel chose to immortalize in song. lament to the unemployed of Allentown at first offended the town fathers, but the citizens got 10,000 signatures urging Joel to perform the song for them, and that's just what he did. The town fathers responded by giving Joel a key to the city. Really shows you how very cyclical things are and with how how much things change, they very much stay the same in a lot of ways. And that's what makes an album like this and and maybe to a point the river. River came out in 82, right? By Springsteen. I think so. Very sort of conceptual cousins in a, in a small way. Like when we talked to Johnny Lyde, and one of the Johnnies really just pointed that out, that that's why he wanted to do that album in particular, because he he felt the resonance of it now. Um, and it, you know, I, I mean, there's so much more to say about the nylon curtain that I'm sure we'll get to a little later uh, this year. But to that point, what's interesting is the one thing that wouldn't be timeless on this album is the one other classic song on this album that does not come up or barely comes up in these interviews, and that's Goodnight Saigon. He concentrates yeah. so much on Allentown and pressure. And that's pretty notable because Saigon is, you know, certainly up there in the canon, sort of brushed over in these. 
I think part of that too is they were focusing so much on the singles, you know, at the time. Pressure and Allentown were the first two singles. Those were both released in 1982, while Goodnight Saigon didn't come out until 83. So maybe that just wasn't getting as much attention because it wasn't a single at that point early in the uh, cycle. And how weird is it to say, though, that Goodnight Saigon, Tell Her About It, and Uptown Girl were released in the same year as singles? We've discussed this before, and it will never not bear mentioning. (laughs) I know. It's just insane to me. You couldn't get any further apart, but they were released less than, you know, within the same calendar year at some point. I'll point out that there will be a few things he says in this interview that he says elsewhere and also on Night School. Uh, But the one unique story we get here was where uh, the the quote unquote fathers of Allentown were were, uh, not impressed with Mr. Joel's depiction of their little hamlet. But the townspeople, and I'll talk about them as if this is, this was uh, The Simpsons, you know, <laughs> like the townspeople, right. <laughs> um, got a 10,000 signature petition for Billy to come and sing the song in Allentown. So clearly it struck yep. the right chord. The juxtaposition too, like they talked about the, the, you know, the fathers of the town not being happy with it. And then they cut to like talking to the kids. Yeah. And they're like, that's amazing. Billy Joel's talking about our town. We love it. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we want him to come here. Blah, blah. So. Again, it's a generational thing. Wait, wait, what was that sound? Did we run out of tape? Hang on, let me check. Ah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I know I should have gotten the 120-minute cassettes. I knew the 90s weren't going to be long enough. Uh, Yeah, so I think we're going to have to take a quick break here. I'm going to go run to the store and grab another Memorex so we can pick back up here. So stay tuned. In a couple weeks, we're going to pick this back up here and get back into Billy's TV appearances where we're going to go through 1984. And in the meantime, uh, we'd still like to hear from you, even though we haven't gotten all the way through our journey yet. Uh, Do you remember seeing any of these when they came out? Did anybody uh, capture them on VHS and pop them in from time to time before their VCRs finally broke down for good? Give us an email, as always, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And we are all over the socials. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we have a new Discord server as well, too. So shoot us a line if you want the link to that. Uh, But we're all over social. We love connecting with everyone there. So come find us. And for now, we'll be sleeping with the television on. I think you got it. See you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.